Hello, hello, and welcome to Built on Hope, a podcast dedicated to competitive imperial assault. I'm Ace Isaac, and in this episode we have something quite, quite exciting to be looking at. Now, there are two fantasy flight game meta tournaments coming up, which has not happened for quite a few years now. One is occurring in the United Kingdom at Curtain Games right at the beginning of March, and one is happening at Adepticon. Now, the thing about these events is that we haven't had a standard meta tournament in such a long time. And so what we're going to be doing is that we're going to be bringing on some folk, and we are going to be talking about what was the FFG meta before ISCP started and before all of this came to crash down. Once we're done with that, however, there has been a lot that's happened recently with IACP in terms of upcoming IACP tournaments, also at Adepticon, and also looking at, well, what exactly happened out of the massive Season 6 season. Because I, I we did promise on uh, the podcast prior to the Season 6 launch how big and radical Season 6 would be, and turns out we were correct. So we are going to be bringing on Noah to discuss in detail what exactly happened in Season 6, and what are the stats, what figures have done well, and why. We're going to have a little bit of theory crafting in terms of upcoming ISCP metas, as well, in addition to standard meta. So if you're joining us, you've never heard of ICP before, you're just planning on attending the Adepticon tournament and the Curtain Games tournament, we welcome you. And we do hope that you enjoy the podcast. So without any further ado, I say we bring on the wonderful, wonderful Jessica. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Very good, thanks. It's uh, been quite a busy few few months as as has been shown in our incredibly efficient upload schedule, but it's it's been good. It's been very good. I'm really excited to get back into recording. We've got a lot of stuff going on with IA, IACP. So yeah, really looking forward to this episode. 100%. It's going to be good fun. And also going to be interesting to really touch base again on what was the FFG meta, because that really feels like a lifetime ago at this point. Just the idea of having a meta which doesn't involve vehicles and Boba Fett and all of those things. It, it feels foreign. It, it feels strange at this point. Before we, we bring on the next host, Jessica, do you want to talk about the news? Yep, you got it. So first up, events. So there is going to be a free IACP Vassal tournament next week on Saturday, February 26th. Check out the link to sign up in the show notes. All right, for those of you in the UK, there is going to be an FFGIA nostalgia event at Curtain Games in the Southwest on Saturday, the 5th of March. They are planning on a four-round Swiss event with a top eight cut, and the event starts at 10 a.m. I will also put the link to sign up in the show notes. Biggest news so far is the upcoming map rotation, which has just been announced. So Devaron Garrison is replacing Jabba's Palace officially on March 21st. However, the committee has released the information early so that all of you who are planning on attending the Adepticon tournament can get in some practice games on the new map. Now, for those of you that are currently in the competitive league, you do have the option of playing on the new map if both you and your opponent agree. If you roll a Jabba's Realm mission and both players agree, you can swap it out for the corresponding Devron Garrison mission. Also, if both players agree, you can skip rolling and just play on Devron Garrison, but the committee asks that players not play the same mission in consecutive weeks to prevent abuse of this edit. 
Also, uh, Noah has uploaded some really good stuff to the IA Command YouTube channel, so definitely check that out. Especially notable, Noah and Isaac interviewed Paul and Todd, who were IA developers during the FFG days. And Noah talks about this later in our episode, but he has posted a series that's aimed at returning players as a guide to IACP if you want to get back into IACP but don't know really where to start and what the changes are. Definitely check out those videos. Now, I also have an editing note, as this is just from the future, that we recorded a monster three and a half hour session with Noah coming on and talking about vanilla FFG throwback tournament and what the meta was kind of for the FFG meta before IACP started. We're going to start with that. Then we're going to get into a discussion about if you are returning to IACP and you're new to IACP, what are the tips and things that you should look out for? And we go into a really long discussion about what is our IACP meta currently in season six, uh, going into this section of the competitive season. And also, Jake jumps on and chats with us, and we have him jumping on kind of at the end of where Noah is chatting with us, and we have decided that Jake deserves his own episode. So you'll hear him kind of jumping in sporadically in this episode, but we don't really properly talk to him until the next one. All right, so another small editing note. I rearranged some of the segments so that it made a little bit more sense. So time is a relative construct. When we talk about earlier and later, who knows? So, okay, I hope you enjoy. So that's it for me and Back to you, Isaac. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Jess. And as always, we are joined by the excellent David. How are you doing, my friend? Yeah, hello there. Pretty good. Excellent. All right. So what we got coming up now is that we are bringing on a member of the ICP Steering Committee, the one and the only host of the IA Command YouTube channel, TV Boy, also known as Noah. How are you doing, my friend? Welcome back on. Yes, thanks for having me on. Brilliant. So it has been a while since you've been on the podcast. Do you, would you mind doing a little reintroduction of yourself to the audience? Uh, yeah, sure. I'm TV Boy. I, I run the uh, IA Command uh, YouTube channel, so I really appreciate you guys having me on here to talk because it's uh, a lot easier when I don't have to edit stuff. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, let's see. I'm a member of the steering committee since season three. I played competitive skirmish for quite a while since Bespin Gambit, and I played campaign since Twin Shadows. I've done a lot of like custom fan content for the game, and then I was really happy to be able to join the steering committee to do it for you guys like officially. I wear a lot of hats on the steering committee. I do now. I do a lot of the um, graphical work. I do a lot of the behind the scenes stuff, site website administration. Um, and uh, I do the uh, the the stats for when we track stats for performance of figures and cards. All of those vassal logs that all of you submit to the website, I take all of those and I manually input them into a spreadsheet. I, I open up all those games and, and fast forward through them and put input the results uh, into a spreadsheet, and then we tr track the results from there. Thank you so much for all your hard work. That sounds like a lot of time spent on it, but I find the data analysis so interesting. I think that is really valuable, especially since we have such a small community to kind of get these big 
picture ideas about who's playing what, especially you being on the committee. And then you guys can use that data to kind of make your decisions. I think that's really cool. Yeah, the data is definitely like I've always felt it's important to have the data just so we're not blind to what's actually happening out there in the wild. But it's also a bit of a double-edged thing because if you can't rely too much on the data, because like you said, the community is is actually pretty small and um, it can get kind of insulated sometimes where players are influencing things a lot more than the strength of the cards because sometimes there's a mm-hmm. skill disparity, etc., etc. So we look at not just the data, but also individual players' experiences, people's feedback they give us, and our own intuition and how we are perceiving things as happening um, in the game. It is always really fun to look at these things, though. Yeah, we, David and I are scientists, so we love data. But we, yeah, we're also pretty familiar with uh, the concept of data bias, so definitely. <laughs> yeah, and it can look kind of wonky sometimes if you're not used to looking at data. The reason we don't make the data always publicly available is because it can look really weird sometimes, and it's it can be very easy to jump to the wrong conclusions looking at this data if you're not super familiar with the the games as they were played. So that's why we don't always release it to the public. But I do try to share it when I have the time to organize it all. No, definitely, because ultimately it's a combination of analyzing the quantitative and qualitative data. Thanks, Noah, for coming on. Why don't we start by discussing the FFG meta? Okay, so I'll just talk about the FFG meta. So first of all, it's important to realize, I don't know what map rotation you guys are doing in the UK, but for Adepticon, we're we're doing Tarkin, Coruscant, Back Alleys, and then we're swapping out Lothal Waste for Endor Defense Station. And that's going to have a big impact on the meta, because Endor Defense Station is as far away from Lothal Waste as you can really get. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) God. If you look at Endor Defense Station, and I have a whole video about Endor Defense Station on my channel from a while ago. If you look at Endor Defense Station, it doesn't look like it would favor close range lists because it's very big and long. But that middle room, the way that it works with that line of sight blocking wall, and then the way the objectives are set up where you get so much points for controlling that middle objective or that middle room, it really does favor lists that fight close and brawler lists, and it really disfavors long-range lists like rangers and weak ways. Talking about the meta that existed before the game shut down and people stopped playing, we had a few tournaments in 2020 and 29, late 2019. So th- we're talking about the post-Spectre meta, right? So because Spectre still dominated after Tyrant's Lothal came out, and then we had this brief period of Spectre was nerfed, and then we had a no IACP meta. Nova Open happened. So there were two tournaments that had Lothal Waste, and there was only one big tournament that had Endor Defense Station. So Nova Open happened. That had a lot of Lothcats and Scum VP, and then Average Joe Gamer was playing Han and Leia. Han, I think it was Han, Leia, Sabine, or was it Han, Drock, Leia? You can go watch it. That's also on my channel. You can watch the games from the Nova Open. And then also uh, Han's Heroes, which is Han, Drock, Sabine. The only viable Rebel lists were Han, Drock, Sabine, and then Spectre Cell. There was a Rebel Spies list that did pretty well as well. I don't remember that one. I think it, it even had Mern. This is why I remembered it so well. <laughs> I, I will also say that Han Rangers were definitely still viable. I know they weren't played basically at all in America, but they did win uh, both the French National Championships and the final UK Regional Championships in late 2019 and early 2020. That list definitely was still viable, but it, it definitely was um, very difficult to play in that meta. 
So I would imagine they would be pretty good on Lothal. No, no, exactly. In in the Lothal meta, they they do very well. So LVO was in January 2020. This also had Lothal wastes, and this one was I was there for that one, and we had the Utah crew come up for that, including JK, Matt Richards, Kenny, Scott. That one was pretty much dominated by the Utah crew's uh, double weekways list. So double weekways, Onar, Greedo, uh, 3PO, Jabba, and Gideon. So it had the three focusers because it had so many figures to focus. And then it also had um, Black Market. And so that one dominated because of how good it was on Lothal Waste and Honestly, course on back at least was really good because it had that long diagonal sight line across the map. I think Endor would definitely put a damper on that. The other one that did well was Sam Sweeten brought Spectre Cell, nerfed Spectre Cell, and he was so good with that list, he was able to take it to the finals, or I think maybe semifinals. So he did really well. Uh, we also had, I want to say, two Vader lists. I had a, I think I was running Vader Riots, and Scott was running Vader Jets, and then we also had one player who was running Hondrock Sabine with MHD, but I don't think any of them made it to the top four. That was an 11-player tournament. I can tell you from experience that Vader does very well on Endor Defense Station, so uh, for that rotation. Uh, so Vader's Vader's back in the game for the FFG old school. Yeah, I think if I managed to make it to that one, I would definitely play Vader. Yeah, and then finally in March 2020, we had found out that Worlds was canceled. So we had the Vassal Homeworlds tournament, and that is where we finally had the Endor Defense Station rotation, where we rotated out Lothal Wastes and um, brought in Endor Defense Station. And that's because Endor Defense Station was supposedly the next official map that was going to rotate, but it actually would have rotated out Tarkin. So I don't think anybody really wanted to keep playing on Lothal Wastes. Yeah, I don't (laughs) think anyone contested that change. (laughs) We had 32 players in that tournament um which is really good i mean that's one of the Mm -hmm. biggest tournaments we've had in a long time looking at the list so we actually did have a few people play weekways they did not do well the winner was a chewbacca han solo list played by lucas carrillo and i think that definitely speaks to the impact that endor had chewbacca is fantastic on endor because again you're rewarded for fighting in close you have that line of sight blocking and then his his slam ability pushes figures off of the objectives that are worth a ton of points there the runner-up was a scum list amathor playing hondo onar credo sabine so that's definitely a what do you call it scum vp list we also had Carson, who's playing Lothcat, so those are still good. Or wait, do or do not? Is that Carson? No, that's Jason Brigge. Yeah, he, I think he played them at, at Nova. Yeah, he, he played those at Nova. So Lothcats are really good. Um, elite Lothcats with Beast Tamer, and he was playing Last Resort, so those are good. Th- those line up really well against the FFG meta, the Lothcats. We also had Kyle playing Vader Palp Thrawn. Uh, he was really good at that list. And then we have Derek playing ig88 and mhd that's a derek list he really liked that and actually you guys can go to my channel we have the live stream vod from the event i think you guys commented on that right yes we did yeah so i actually went back and watched that a couple months ago that was a lot of fun yeah average joe gamer played han leia so yeah a lot of vader up at the top of the rankings ig88 is really good and endor of course because he wants to get in close hit you a bunch of times and then run away Mm-hmm. And so that's really good for that. I, I also think there was one one more list that nobody ever played in that meta, which is the one I was preparing for Worlds that had some really good matchups at the time. It was that super janky 
kind of four act line ambush rangers. <laughs> oh yeah. You were running that for uh oh I didn't know that that was uh That was for worlds. Yeah, Bas- basically once the rangers dropped they got off 12 attacks before you got to go again and either I had 40 points or I was probably going to lose. <laughs> <laughs> that that was a fun list. It, it was really fun. Yeah, so basically overview on what how that one went there were multiple han chewy lists that did well there was multiple vader lists that did well um actually two vader palp thron tuka also ran vader palp thron and did well and then scum vp was the other one that did well and then scum lists that were not running weak ways although david burian did managed to sneak in with his hks so take that as you will uh yeah by that time he'd been playing them for like two years pretty much straight so if anybody's gonna bring hks anywhere Yeah, he snuck in the top eight with a 3-3 record, so good for him. So that's pretty much your meta. I mean, you guys can post up the link. I have the link to the tabletop TO list, and people can look at that. That was really the only big event that had that map rotation, but I think that's a really good one to look at as to what the meta would be for FFG rotation with that map rotation. It's it's actually quite wide. I mean, it isn't so clear what would come out on top. It is, but I would say that you're still kind of limited to like two to three archetypes perfection yeah which is you know ends up feeling pretty it gets tired after a while well then let's mix it up and talk about what's going on with icp but first off for those of you out there that have only played standard ffgia but are interested in getting into icp keep listening noah's got some pointers to get you started i just posted four videos that do a full overview of the icp cards and i wanted to let people know that that's available so for new players to icp if you're not sure where to look that is a great way especially because they're organized by faction it starts off with an overview of the icp project and the neutral cards and then there's a video for each faction that goes over each card in icp mostly just briefly but it gives people a chance to have a guided tour of icp cards and i think that is really good to mention for people that are interested in icp but maybe not sure where to start i'm sure and i'm hoping a lot of people are going to jump in with this adepticon tournament to try it out but there's some things that can catch you off guard if you're not aware so i thought i would kind of run through these real quick so some things you need to be aware of first of all if you're playing against guardians you need to stay aware of the cards iron will and get behind me Iron Will is a three-point card that will, when played, will limit your damage to just three damage on the attack, and that is played after all other attackers declare effects. So tools, things like tools for the job, element of surprise, focus, that will all get played before Iron Will gets played. So that is a big gotcha if you're not ready for it and you're just pumping all this these cards into one attack, you might get got by Iron Will, so keep that in mind. And then similarly, Get Behind Me is a card that can get you if there's a Guardian standing next to the figure you're trying to kill, they can force you to spread their damage by using Get Behind Me. So oftentimes it will be better to just kill off their Guardians, although Guardians can guard each other with this card. That was intentional. So just something to be aware of. Um, a lot of times there's not much you can do about it, and they're just going to force you to spread damage, but it feels less bad if you are right, if you know it's coming. More things to be aware of. Ambush is a command card for Cara Dune if you play against her, and it lets her move four spaces to a space adjacent to the attacker and deal two damage to them. So just like with Ahsoka, you don't want to attack with a three health figure. Ahsoka, because they're right back at you, you don't want to attack Kara with a two health figure if she hasn't played Ambush yet, uh, unless you are far enough away that she can't get next to you. 
things I have listed here. Uh, Lion Ambush. This card sees a ton of play in IACP. It was never played in FFG. Read the card and then read it again. <laughs> yeah, on round two, read it again. <laughs> Make sure you know when exactly it's going to come out. It is so confusing the way they worded this card. <laughs> Shout out to Daniel Taylor. <laughs> shade there's even lists i mean david uh, you innovated this but there's entire lists built around this card with like three activations to force it to trigger after the opponent has activated all their figures in round two but sometimes people just put it in their six activation list and it, they just randomly pop out and if you're not ready for it it's gonna get you gonna get got uh, other things to know, spies are pl quite plentiful in IACP compared to FFG. There's a lot, and then in combination with, as we talked about, HK47 plus Headhunter, there's a lot more hand disruption in IACP than there used to be. Honestly, in my opinion, this has been a positive effect. I know not everybody feels that way, but this has kept the game from becoming too much about crazy command card combos. It keeps people honest, is how I put it, where if you go too all in, because we had a discussion about this, and this is a video coming out soon, where in Imperial Assault, the fact that it costs nothing to play command cards means you are incentivized to jam as much card draw as possible into a list because you get rewarded so heavily for drawing extra cards. So just be aware that there are a lot more spies and you're going to see Intel Leak and Strat Shift more often in ICP than you'd used to in um, FFG. Next one, Assassinate nerf. For those that don't know, it was nerfed so you can't play other command cards in the same attack that you play Assassinate. The reason I bring this up is because a lot of people get this wrong and think this doesn't work, but you cannot play Assassinate and, and play cards like Celebration or Opportunistic because those are played during the attack. You know, people get that Assassinate, the nerfed Assassinate, you can't stack it with other like damage cards like Element or tools but people forget because they think of celebration opportunistic as being like not attack cards but you can't play those during at the same time as assassinate and i see people do this a lot so especially if your opponent does that to you if they assassinate you and then they play celebration you gotta be like hey 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 can't do that jakes same with opportunistic if they try to play that off of assassinate that you gotta tell them hey can't do that next one tough luck sees a lot of play in icp we actually somebody actually just brought this up on zion's finest because there's a lot more rerolls in the game you see a lot of tough luck just getting randomly splashed into lists compared to how it was at the end of the game uh so be aware like i actually have a video on this on how to reroll your dice in imperial assault don't randomly reroll your dice if you don't need to because there's a good chance their opponent might have tough luck in their list one more thing, and actually, I guess we touched on this, Maul. Don't let Maul get close to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't get stabbed. Yeah, Maul is balanced by how slow he is, but if you don't realize that, and you just let him walk up to you because you think, oh, it's Maul, he's just gonna do his lame Maul attack, he will destroy you with Darksaber. Also, people, they look at Darksaber and they're like, oh, it gives him a one-die attack? Okay, whatever. That's with Twins, um, what's it, Fueled by Hatred or whatever it's called. What is that called? The ability that focuses him. Dual Bladed Fury. Oh, it's Jake. Hello, Jake. Hello. But yeah, Dual Bladed Fury, he gets a focus on that red die attack and the plus one in eight. So he will double attack you into Oblivion. Don't let him get close to you. Just kill him. And if you can't kill him because of fueled by anger, whatever that thing is that keeps him from <laughs> dying, yeah, sustained by rage. At least you'll limit him to only one attack. Don't get got by Maul. People who play against Maul for the first time are like, this card's broken. And then you realize, well, just I'll just kill him and stay away, and then it's it's okay. So that's it. Good advice. All right. So Noah, 
Let's then get into it. What is going on with the current ICP Season 6 meta? So for this episode, um, we have a lot of data. We have data from like just casual games that people have been playing on Vassal, which people tend to experiment a lot. And so there's a high variability in those games. And then we have data from just the... We have had four tournaments now in the proved play and then we've had a we had a six week league that also had a top eight, and I have separated out the games from just that data set. So if we look at that one, because that's where people are really like competing and trying to win instead of just messing around. So looking at the um, factions there, um, rebels have a twenty eight percent meta share and a forty five percent forty five point sixty five percent win rate. Empire has a thirty percent meta share and a forty seven percent win rate and then mercenaries or scum have a 41 percent meta share so quite a bit more than the 33 percent we would average we would expect and then a 56.16 percent win rate so quite a bit higher than rebels and empire mm. we, we have a theory about what might have caused that <laughs> Please do share your theories. Yes, please share. Well, we kind of outlined it in our January 31st changes article, and that's um, the Mandalorian Phoenix Rising figure ended up being a little bit stronger than we intended. It was quite quite the roller coaster ride of changes during the playtesting season. He went from extremely weak in 6.0 to then we buffed him way too high. Um, that was on me because I made the suggestion to give him two attacks. I'm like, well, he made one attack's not good. Give him two attacks. that was too much uh so but it turns out that the downgrade in 6.2 was not quite enough of a downgrade on his two attacks uh and so he's very good i think there was also a miscalculation or an underestimation of clan of two that i i had pointed out but uh making it so it doesn't cost zero i think will be much more accurate to uh the cost and power level ratio to for him yeah especially when you look at comparing rising phoenix mando with the other mando which i think is renegade hunter or something because when you look at the fact that you're getting a free clan of two then essentially you could make the argument that rising phoenix mando is a nine point figure and when you put it that way then you compare the rising phoenix mando for nine points versus the renegade mando for eight points there's just no competition but if one figure is eight points and the other figure is ten points okay well then actually you do have a little bit of Okay, do you go for a sniper Mando who is a little bit better at shooting at long range and is also two points less? And that's ultimately just the debate, which now can be had as a result of the nerf. So Noah, do you want to talk a little bit about what the nerf exactly resulted in to anyone who might have been playing Mando but maybe missed that announcement? We nerfed Mando. It was a ch- among five changes, but those the rest were much smaller. But we removed his Mudhorn Crest ability completely and that was a, that was a suggestion by the community i think several people su- made that suggestion and so now so clan of two costs one to attach to him and then the other nerf was his beskar spear instead of red, red and yellow and pierce two is now a green and yellow and pierce one a lot more reasonable he's still gonna do a lot of damage when he comes yeah. in because he still has that reroll, and that reroll is the major in my opinion is the major force multiplier for him if you're getting three attacks off with protective fire and beskar spear that reroll is going to make all those attacks a lot more consistent however i do think that the green yellow change that's going to lower his damage ceiling with that beskar spear and then bringing the pierce down from two to one is also going to lower the floor where 
his minimum damage won't be so high either. So that that'll be that'll be good. Exactly, because we've really seen a big rise in ICP of characters with innate blocks, not just in the Empire faction. I mean, actually, quite the opposite. We've seen a lot of other factions getting innate blocks, whereas the Empire hasn't, because we've realized quite early on how busted an innate block is in a list with Zillow, with Royal Guards, and evades, yada, yada, yada. You can uh, look at, uh, you can listen to the Royal Guard episode where Ollie and I ran uh, Boba Fett and Vader with Royal Guards. That was an experience, let me tell you that. But yeah, just bringing the pierce down. Innate pierce is so incredibly powerful, and innate pierce one is incredible as someone who's played rangers since the dawn of time that pierce one can do so much work and innate pierce two is is too much it's far 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 too much i mean especially if you consider that he's got a whole bunch of attack opportunities per round you're actually gonna get six pierce or something out of that oh well the pierce the innate pierce is only on the spear attack so Ah, his regular attack and protective fire don't have the innate pierce i see i see but, but you know that's the thing you know you look at his attack pool and he's he's basically an owner in term, you know the classic blue green red search for plus two search for pierce one that's that's very very good it's very good i will say that the pierce so i actually did an analysis on like 16 games with him to see what was making his damage good so i kind of like did made a spreadsheet of all of his attacks from actual games Pierce often actually gets wasted because he has Surge for Pierce 1. So a lot of times, like, it doesn't matter that it's Pierce 2 or Pierce 1. That that just falls off. Because, you know, with Pierce, if there's no blocks to Pierce, you're not actually gaining damage from it. But the, having the red die and the reroll was what was really pushing that damage up because he kept rerolling that red to get plus 1 or plus 2 damage. Uh, so the real, I think, in my opinion, the real big change is going from red to green because that's going to lower that damage cap because you know the green can't can only go so high compared to the red exactly and what i find particularly interesting as well is the fact that his pierce has gone from pierce 2 to pierce 1 but by giving him that green die instead then suddenly you're looking at a much higher probability of getting a spare surge to give yourself the search for pierce 1 which then means that you're sacrificing you know, a, a potential damage symbol on the green die for, for a surge. And that's the thing. I think if you were to have an innate PS1 and then a surge for another PS1, that doesn't feel too bad. Again, you know, just referring to rangers, when they can surge for an additional PS1, that doesn't feel too bad. It's just strong. But the fact that you're sacrificing you know, an ideal extra pip of damage anyway, it doesn't really matter much. It just brings them along the same line. Yeah, and I'll say two more things before we move off of Mando. Is that the 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 child was a really big part of what was making him so strong. Having basically an extra two or three health from Force Heal being very difficult to stop with stun because Force Heal removes. Um, and and the the child was designed in season four. This is way before Mando ever existed. You know, Mando got a little crazy with the child's abilities, and then force exhaustion, being able to effectively remove an, a def- an attack die once per game, and weaken so minus one surge. It made him very very durable. It made him very hard to deal with and hard to take down. And so it also gave him access to these neat tricks with uh, Field Tactician, which is what I noticed was a really big deal. Being able to move 10 and attack uh, was Mm -hmm. very strong with that command card. 
So uh, losing access to Clan of Two or going to 11 is really big. So that was the other thing is we liked that change because it gave people who wanted to just keep running him at 10, they have the option to keep running him at 10. It's Because otherwise it's very disruptive if we just do a hard points change because it messes up everybody's right. list building. Because yeah. you know, now they're at 41, they got to find a spot. You can keep running Mando at 10. It's just he's going to be way different than what you were used to with having the child available because you also lose access to protective fire if you don't bring the child uh, which mm -hmm. was intentional how many um, of the mercenary games or lists actually did include rising phoenix mando i used to track unique appearances based on unique lists but now i i haven't been doing that so so this will just track the meta share is just how many times he was played out of how many games were played so he's been 30 percent of the meta for tournament and league games so out of total games played and then for scum faction he has been in wow 72 percent of scum lists <laughs> yeah yeah that's pretty high for comparison java the hut is in 81 percent of scum lists and 3po is in all of the lists yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah even empire somehow well, thankfully, 3PO is not an empire. Another change that I really wanted to touch on, because I find very, very interesting, and I'm curious to see how that goes, is that while we've nerfed Mando, the child actually saw a buff in terms of the Mando, in the sense oh, yeah. that now when you push the child at the end of Mando's activation, you can push him into his own space, which means that he's going to get protective fire off a lot more consistently. And to be honest, I think that's perfectly fine, because looking at the card now, it seems like he's been brought back back down to line that he's not completely broken he's now an 11 point figure but he can reliably do a return fire which makes him comparable to han which i didn't really think is a big problem yeah so the the change you're talking about is clan of two it used to be um and somebody pointed this out to us only after the uh play testing period it used to be that the push ability could only push the child to an adjacent space and we thought that meant it could push it to your space because of the companion rules, but we, that was a, we misunderstood that. So it ended up being that if you activated the child first before Mando, then Mando would activate and then Clan of Two would push it. You couldn't push the child onto Mando's space to, to turn on protective fire, basically. And that was really awkward if you wanted to activate the child first, like to remove stun before Mando activated or something like that. You, what you'd have to do is you'd have to, have to activate Mando first, then you activate the child, and then you move the child onto Mando's space, like with his own movement. So now, like like you said, Isaac, it's much more easy to keep protective fire turned on no matter which way you activate them. And that's going to be a nice quality of life improvement for people that want to keep playing Mando with the child. Um, and I think he is worth playing at 11 still. No, exactly. Because that is a, when you look at it, a very, very powerful buff. Because essentially what the debate was earlier is you can either get your protective fire in a round or you can use the child to remove stun or, you know, play that field technician. Yeah, you essentially had the debate between doing one of those things. And now the fact that you can do those things and still get your return fire, that is a very, very big buff. And but that's the thing. I think the rest of the nerfs, such as the points increase and the best cost spear nerf, I think that's enough to keep him balanced. Because that's the thing, you know, we don't want to make him trash. We want people still to run him. We just don't want the same kind of oh god, what do I do against this maniac? So it's going to be interesting, and who knows, maybe he'll need more changes, because again, that is a very, very big buff. But I think the nerfs counteract it, but time will tell. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so even with the uh, with the changes, we're still expecting that the Mandalorian is going to to be a significant showing in the tournament, right? Oh yeah, I'd say so. So I guess the question is, what what else would we expect out of Scum? Yeah, so let's see. Looking at Scum, um, probably the most played figure outside of the Mandalorian, actually slightly more, uh, was Bib Fortuna. So he has been quite a presence in Scum lists. And he comes with a significant drawback of not being able to play any Rebel figures. So you can't include Rebel Care Package if you bring Bib, but you gain access to the very powerful Illicit Arms ability, which is allows you to discard a command card once per attack uh, to add plus one damage, which only works in Scumless. You can't bring that to Empire. So yeah, that's been really strong, we've noticed. But I think it's worth the drawback. And he his win rate has been... High, 58%, but lower than Mando's for sure. What have people been pairing Bib with? Uh, Mando. (laughs) (laughs) Statistically, I mean. (laughs) Yeah, definitely Mando. Um, Jabba, of course, because you can't bring 3PO or Gideon, so you need access to that other focus. We've seen a little bit of Claudite play, I think, in this era. Not much, though. It looks like he's pretty low at 7. Yeah, pretty much just... Uh, Jabba, and then usually you see Afra because you can't bring R2, so you lose out on some card draw. You, I mean, you keep you're keeping access to card draw with with Jabba, but Afra really helps with that discard cost because you can discard your cheaper cards to Bib, and you know you'll be able to replay them with Afra later with excavation. Going back to what's being played in Scum, Onar gets a ton of play. He's pretty much in almost every Scum list still. Mm. Very solid. Looking at our data, Dr. Afra is also super popular. Again, probably because of Bib Fortuna bringing her numbers up. Greedo is still super popular. So interestingly, regular Jawas are up on the rise because of Bib. Um, mm. Because you don't need really need the, the elite Jawa. I mean, some people were experimenting with Elite Jawas and Dark Troopers uh, with Bib Fortuna, because Bib's ability is worded so that any faction figure can use illicit arms, but you have to have a scum list to use it. It has to be a scum army. So regular Jawas are on the rise as activation fillers, because you don't see as many um, Elite Jawas being used to bring in stuff like R2-D2 and C-3PO. IG-11 has been really good with Bib. Actually, Bib was probably the reason we... It was one of the reasons we decided it was time to increase IG-11's command card from 1.2. The other reason being that Afro made it really strong being able to replay that card. Because IG-11, he's got a reroll, but he's not a hunter, so he doesn't have access to the same kind of damage modifiers that hunters do. So Bib Fortuna really gives him that extra bit of damage control that he likes to have with that powerful um, three dice rapid fire. Makes him much more able to get kills off of that rather than having to spend two both of his attacks to kill something. He can often get he can get a kill with the first attack and then put his second attack somewhere else. Mm. Yeah, it's a lot of flexibility. Yeah. So that's what we're seeing in Scum uh, as far as being run with Bib. I can tell you some of the lists that uh, we've seen in the meta for Scum. One of the first archetypes we saw emerge in the Mando meta was uh, Mando plus Onar plus 
Migs Mayfeld, and Migs Mayfeld also has return fire. He literally has return fire. Although, interestingly, I think we messed up because Mayfeld's return fire is Han's return fire as it has been modified by Rogue Smuggler. So that's a little iffy, but we, we went with it. Because <laughs> everybody knows how return fire works now. And yeah, it's not yeah, the way exactly. it's printed on Han's card. Uh, so yeah, Mando plus Honor plus Mayfeld. So the idea there is it's kind of like this defensive counterpunching list because, again, Mayfeld has uh, return fire, Mando has protective fire, and then Onar, of course, has extra protection. And two of those figures are guardians, so they have access to bodyguard and mm. get behind me. So you would set up this kind of box sort of with these three figures where you have each of them protecting each other in a certain way so if you attack any of them you're probably going to get attacked back by at least two of them it, it's an interesting list i think it's a very difficult list to play like i definitely didn't yeah. i chose not to play it when i was deciding what to do with my mando list because it has this intricate setup you have to do and it's going to be different for each map of course because you have to manage your sight lines and all of that um, but if you can set it up it's pretty powerful and it was doing really well early in the the competitive season yeah, because it has that defensive power, but they still hit pretty hard as well. So you still have both the defensive abilities plus offensive abilities if you can pull off the sight lines and everything. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So that has evolved as we went along to the more recent uh, successful Mando list was Mandalorian plus IG-11 with Bim mm. Fortuna in the list. This is what I played for the entire league because I realized... Very offensive. <laughs> yeah, and I realized that with access to illicit arms, it made my these two queen pieces much more efficient at ensuring they get kills with their attacks. And because that's the problem if you run a list that has just queen pieces is if your attacks don't kill and you have to like spend big attacks to do one damage to something to finish it off, right. it really messes up your efficiency. So Bib makes them a lot more efficient. And so it was Mando plus IG. My version had Greedo and Afra, And so Greedo and a regular Jawa rounded it out to give me an extra attacker. And then uh, Carson ended up taking the list in the later part of the league and refining it by adding, he took out Greedo and the regular Jawa and added HK-47. Uh, and he actually won the league, so Jake knocked me out in top eight because he, he made this uh, Jawa Swarm VP list to take out my queen pieces. <laughs> and then Carson ended up winning the whole thing with this HK-47 version. And then I think Josh took that and refined it further by taking my advice i i assume because i had been talking about it a lot and adding headhunter because hk47 plus headhunter means you can mockery somebody and then take a random card out of their hand mm. so that's a really good combo if you are running h thinking about running hk47 definitely consider adding headhunter for some extra command card disruption extra mocking <laughs> really rub it in there rub the salt in yeah <laughs> Um, it is really good. I, I will say HK47 with Headhunter, definitely underplayed too. I think people just didn't know, realize that was a combo, but it's way better than Chopper because Chopper, you can't actually control whether your opponent lets you do that. You're basically just forcing them to not go to their terminal. But with HK, you can proactively go and deal a strain to them from infinite range, line of sight and take a card out of their hand whether they like it or not. Nasty. Exactly. And HK really has been, I think, a dark horse in this meta. I mean, he is an incredibly strong figure. I would even say that he's one of the strongest figures to come out of the season, of season five, of course. But 
And yes, I haven't really seen him played that widely, but every single time I run against him, there's just that sense of, I have to deal with this figure. Yeah, there were a lot of people that would have disagreed with you there um, at the end of Season 5. I think a lot of people mm. thought that HK got nerfed pretty hard, and I remember a lot of people saying that they would be surprised to see HK in a competitively successful list, so it's cool to see him making a comeback. I think he also enjoys the boost from illicit arms to um, get that extra little bump up on his damage. Mm. Yeah. Oh, looking at HK right now, I just realized what I really want to do at some point. Han Rangers, but then replace Han with HK, and then have HK Rangers <laughs> run it through an empire list, a scum list. <laughs> So I'll just quickly run through a couple more lists for Scum before we go on. So um, the other things we've been seeing, Mando and Boba together. Classic. As Isaac likes to call it. It's Queen Spam. Yes. Thematic. With extra armor. That actually, that list was played by several people, but I didn't see it do too well. It's just something, something about it didn't quite work right. But we did actually see a full Queen Spam. Tuca was playing Mando, Boba, and IG-88 with just a regular Jawa to round it out at four activations. And he did pretty well with that list, but he he played that list through the entire playtesting season. So he got quite good with it. It looks fun. Yeah, I played against it. It's pretty tough. Like you can maybe kill two figures if you're lucky and that's the only way you can win. But it's going to be really hard to kill all three. Let's see. And then finally, um, Ambush Wampas have been played. I think Josh was playing that quite a bit. And uh, Wampas should not be discounted. I think people have counted them out a little bit early. Wampas are quite good, and they have a lot of good command card options. Pummel is extremely easy to pull off with Wampas because they have reach, and they have beast tamer plus hunger, so so they get a lot of extra free movement. They, They have wild fury, ferocity death you know all those command cards are make them awesome uh what's the apex predator is awesome with them and then again you can use them with lion ambush uh so you can pop them into your opponent's deployment zone although if the point if the opponent runs all the way out of their deployment zone they might be a little out of luck because they are a little bit slow but it's pretty unlikely that they'll do that so and then finally like i mentioned um jake was able to make uh vp manipulation work really well with a jawa swarm plus a few key uh figures i think he was running sabine hondo the regular figures you see because they have vp related abilities i think vp is still really strong in any any meta almost but maybe not that popular to play at the moment yeah i think that's what we usually see is vp is very strong it did get toys in support in icp i mean dr afro's command card was was designed for that as was mara jade her command card gives you vps but people seem to just bring it out when they need to win (laughs) 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 who doesn't want to win a depticon (laughs) yeah something about it being too passive or sitting in the deployment zone or something like that i think it's it's just that it's a little bit of a different game changing the rules on people Mm -hmm. all right and what's being played in rebels the rebels have been their performance has dropped off a little bit but i think they were especially held down by mando because they i mean empire has access to zillow technique to really blunt him blunt his impact and rebels just get torn apart by mando if you look at the data like kotun has been super popular but her win rate has not been that high she actually just recently came up above 40 percent she's been riding the 30 percent win rate for most of the season 
And that's true of a lot of the other popular figures in Rebels. And I think that's just because Mando has been an oppressive force against Rebels. Now that he's doing hopefully less damage, he's going to be one-shotting these Rebel Uniques a lot less often. But looking at Rebels, we've seen some some lists. They, they have quite a few archetypes available. I think the most successful one they have has been this kind of Rebel Unique list. This was, I think, innovated by Morgan in the previous season, and it's kind of carried over. So this is a list that is usually uh, headed by Han, and it includes just kind of a smattering of unique figures. But the most often ones we see now are a combination of Kotun, Cassian Andor, Hera, and Jin Odon. Hmm. Sometimes you see, um, instead of Han, you'll see like Lando plus K2. Mm-hmm. But the, the synergy between Kotun, Cassian, and Hera, and then just the power of Jin Odon, who is very strong for a five-point figure. In my opinion, one of the strongest figures in Rebels for her points cost. It gives you this very powerful list that is able to transcend its slow tempo, right? Because you've got single figures that are activating one at a time. So this list, in my opinion, has a tempo issue, but it solve, it gets solved by things like Jin Odon's hair trigger and Cassian able to get an extra attack by sacrificing 3PO sometimes, and it's pretty good. So are people still playing Jedi lists for fun? Yeah, so we haven't seen a lot of Jedi in the Season 6 competitive play. I, I I actually played it, and I thought it did it was really good. I think in the past, we've seen two variants on Jedi lists, which was either just the Jedi knight pieces, so like all the mid-cost pieces plus Yoda, and then Jedi Luke with a mixture of those, uh, usually a deflection list. And I think... Currently, the the night pieces are not good enough. The tempo loss for having just one figure activating at a time is really hard in this current meta where you're often having multiple attacks coming in one activation. Mm-hmm. They just get down-tempoed. But the Jedi Luke deflection list that uses Jedi Luke, Yoda, Ahsoka for right back at you, and then the deflection card, command card. I think that list still has good legs because you've got Jedi Luke, who can, um, you know, do two at- do attacks and also has Son of Skywalker. And you've got usually uh, Ahsoka or Ezra, who are very good at playing Pummel uh, to get those two attacks. And then, of course, you're also dealing extra damage during your opponent's attacks if you're setting up your Yoda positioning correctly. So I think that is a good list in the meta. Oh, I should mention that this list also got better because there was a, a ruling made on Channel of the Force with Yoda, where if you channel the force on yoda's wisdom draw you don't have to put a card back because of the way that's worded so channel the force is basically a free semi-free so to take strain tutor effect for one point with yoda so that i think people also have not realized that yet where it gets around slowly but being able to search out knowledge and defense on round one can be very strong (laughs) yeah as we've seen that's a thing. We've also seen in the meta, Cara Dune has gotten a lot of play. She's a bit of a controversial one because a lot of people still think she's super powerful because, of course, she has access to Call the Vanguard and a self-started parting blow with her smash ability. But her win rate's been pretty low. Uh, she's not been doing well. She's getting a, a lot of play, but she's not doing that well this season. I mean, is that just related more to Mando than anything else? Yeah, it could be. I've seen them go head-to-head, and usually she does not win that fight in a head-to-head with Mando, so that could be definitely the reason. But she gets played in a wide variety of lists. Particularly on the Cara Dune example, I do find it very, very interesting because, like you said, Noah, she really was 
I would probably say the most shouted about figure in at the very start of season six for you know i think good reason because she definitely was a little bit overtuned at first but i definitely do know a lot of players who still think that she's she's far too good and the stats don't really show that out so what why do you think that is are you know not enough people playing her because you know regardless of the number of games played the win rate is still is still quite low so are the wrong players playing her or are they just running into manda all the time do you think uh i think she's really strong when she's played optimally I think that if you don't run her with all of her tools, like if you're not maximizing her command card options, like I've seen people run her without either Call the Vanguard or Parting Blow. I've also seen people run all of those, but she's the only figure in the list that can play them, so they're not optimizing the rest of the list around her. I think she's running into trouble with her stun, and people are not realizing yet that you need to run Unshakable with her. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, people have not been using Unshakable, and I think that's a mistake. As it's been pointed out that when you stun her with Parting Blow, if you don't have a way to remove the stun before the end of the round, you're not going to get access to Call of Vanguard on the next round. That prevents her from maximizing her output. So Unshakable, I think, is the missing key that a lot of people are missing in their Caradune lists. I mean, un- Unshakable always feels slightly expensive if you don't have someone that's worth a huge amount of points to put in. Maybe she's just skirting around that cost where people are like, oh, she's not not worth Unshakable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Precisely. And I think adding on to that, I mean, Unshakable is massive. I had no idea that people were running her without Unshakable because as, as far as I'm concerned, that's basically just a one-point tax on her. But I, I think on top of that as well is Heavy Fire because when you combine Unshakable and Parting Blow combos with Heavy Fire... Don't underestimate that, folks. <laughs> really, do not. I mean, that was one of the combos that you know I started playing first when we were you know playing around with her in in our closed playtesting before releasing her to the public. And it does a lot of work. Just that one extra damage that you can ping on when you really need it, because that's the thing. You can take the full three extra damage because you're already going to become stunned if you played on a parting blow attack. That's it's important to time it right. But just take the full three because you're already getting stunned anyway. Sure, you'll take bleed. But the weaken is getting removed at the end of your activation. So essentially, you're doing plus three damage for only one condition rather than the usual two to three. And that's quite significant. Yeah, I think Heavy Fire is still underestimated a little bit. People don't realize yeah. how good that card is. Um, if you're able to mitigate the downsides, or even in some cases with some figures, you don't even have to bother. Like I always bring Heavy Fire with Rebel Sabs because they don't care about being stunned. They're three points. You don't care if they die. They have priority target so they can draw line of sight just fine from where they're standing yeah being able to add that extra damage against the defender and i think that's another thing people don't realize you can do is that heavy fire you don't have to hit either it's like it's infinite range goes through dodges damage that you get to also ping somebody out of your line of sight arcing shot style so you never have to worry about something living with one health left because if you have heavy fire in your list it's a fantastic card people should play it more for sure 100 percent. yeah so cardoon i'll just say she if you're looking for what to play with her, she gets played with a lot with, with a lot of different stuff. She gets played with like subbing in for Han in that Rebel Uniques list. Um, she gets played with heavy weapons figures, so like Sabs. She's really good with Dracotta, especially if you're going to bring um, Unshakable, which you should be. And then Heavy Fire works well with both, um, right? Because Dracotta costs nine, so she has access to Unshakable and Heavy Fire. And I've seen her played with Wookiees too, because she's a brawler and they're brawlers. And so they both benefit from that. That's the main thing you want with Kara is you just want to have another figure that's a trooper and another figure that's a brawler. So that way you have things that can play Parting Blow and Call the Vanguard if she dies early. I love Call the Vanguard. Such a good card. Oh, it is. 
Yeah, we have people thinking that we should nerf Call of the Vanguard. What? No. And we were like, um, I don't think that's not the right answer. <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. At the end of the day, that's a card that's just been in the meta for so long and hasn't been a problem. So if it's becoming a problem, then that requires looking at the characters that are currently using it and maybe reconsidering that Trooper trait. Not, cha- not changing the command card itself. I think that's quite silly. There is a valid argument that Call of the Vanguard was developed in a meta that didn't have nine-point trooper queen pieces, and so that makes it quite a bit stronger, but we addressed that with Kara with shock and awe, and I think that has properly addressed the problem. She can't get that blue-red-red every time she attacks. She only gets it once. Exactly. I, I think, one, that's completely true, but also, two, you know, the exact same logic can be applied to quite a lot of cards. I mean, just take... All hunter cards, tools for the job was developed in a meta without, you know, without Mando and stuff like that. I, I get the argument, but specifically in terms of troopers, it's just such a versatile card. Do you want to talk about your Wookiee spam list? Oh, I would love to talk about my Wookiee spam list. <laughs> yes, so I sounds fun. Yeah, so I found this little thing over the past few months that I really wanted to give a try. Essentially, I took another good look at the Wookiees because I used to run them in ICP Season 1. I ran Han Double Wookiees. I did awfully, but I had a ton of fun running them. And I never really gave them a second look after that. But then I I did. And I looked at, okay, well, what do they do now? So Wookiee Warriors, to anyone who isn't familiar, the nine points, they ton of health. They hit okay. They don't have an incredible attack. But what's happened since Season 1 is that there's this card called Fury of Kashyyyk that has come out. And, I mean, kudos, there was one player in the Imperial Assault community who was constantly railing on about how incredibly powerful Wookiees were, and I think a lot of people just ignored him, but I gave it a try. And so what I did is I ran two sets of Elite Wookiees, and then looking at the incredible health to points ratio that the Wookiee Warriors have, that is the big USP that they have. They don't hit the best in the game for five points, They're not the fastest in the game for five points, but they're the tankiest in the game for five points. They are 13 health. And so what I did is that I built a list around making them as defensive as possible. And so I put in two copies of extra armor, and then we also throw in Kanan to give them a defensive reroll. So suddenly now these Wookiees are 13 health, one block, innate on most attacks, and they get to reroll their defense dice if they don't like the result. And that's not bad. Then on top of that, you also throw in Yoda into the mix. Essentially, the idea for him was, one, to have a little more force user synergy, so I can throw in Get Behind Me to, yes, keep them even more survivable by directing some attacks to Yoda and to Kanan, but also for the ability to splash damage back. Because here's the thing about Wookiees, and this is why Fury of Kashyyyk is so important to the list. In Fury of Kashyyyk, when a Wookiee takes three or more damage they become focused. Mm -hmm. Now, the Wookiee Warriors themselves have an ability called Fury. When they've taken five damage or more, they apply an additional surge. When you throw Yoda into that equation, what happens is that your opponent does not like attacking Wookiees because the more you attack them, the more buff they get, and the bigger you attack them, as in the bigger your attack is when you go into them, the more damage you're going to take in in return because they're not going to take a ton of damage because they'll have a black die plus a block and a reroll. But if you attack them with a four die attack, okay, well, Yoda's going to splash the damage back at them. And if you're Mando, let's say you're you're a 12 health figure. Okay, you attack them. Sure, let's say you deal you do a big attack. You deal eight damage. Okay, they still got five health left. You are taking four damage in return. And that going from 12 health to eight health, two Wookiees can easily deal with that. And so I experimented with that a lot. And I was blown away by the results. 
I didn't do, I think, quite as well with it as the list could have in the league. I did win a lot of games with it, but I wasn't quite in the best headspace for those individual games that I lost. And, you know, my losses also included very, very strong lists in the meta. You know, I went 4-0 in the league and then lost against Noah uh, in round five with his, you know, the Mandalist that we spoke about earlier. And yeah, so I think to sum all that up, Wookiees are a powerhouse because they are tanky and they are absolutely a dark horse. And again, kudos to Joey for talking about them when no one else was because he's completely correct. I don't think that they're broken, but they are very, very, very strong. Yeah, especially if you can pick out why they're strong and then just lean into that as much as you can, right? Yeah, in our defense, we did nerf uh, Fury of Kashyyyk in Season 5 playtesting period. Yeah. Pretty much strictly based on Joey's feedback. That's who you're talking about. Even though their win rate was not that high in Season 5, but we got the feedback from Joey, and we knew we were playing with fire with that card, so we were just like, let's just nerf it and be safe. And we're glad we did, um, because it's, it is very strong. We've seen the power of Wookiees now with the way Isaac's played them, so I don't think anybody can dispute that Wookiee Warriors are good. Exactly, and I think another big consideration as to why they weren't as good back in the season where that card was released as well is overwhelming impact. So this was a card which I think was rightfully readjusted in the January 31st schedule ICP balance update. And overwhelming impact is heavy weapon or Wookiee, which lets you, for each defense dice, add a damage at a surge and ignore all defense modifiers not on the dice. This takes Wookiees to a whole other degree, because when you can basically guarantee that they are going to get a search for Cleave, because the Cleave is really the key. Cleave really matters for them, and with Free of Kashyyyk giving them a reach and Cleave, it really brings their, their maths up quite a lot. That's Wookiee spam, and we've seen Wookiees outside of this yoda Kanan combination, so... Mm-hmm. They're doing great. So if you want to play Wookiees, uh, they are definitely an option. And you can also bring in Chewie benefits from Fury of Kashyyyk as well. Garkin, I suppose, as well. Yeah, Garkin. I mean, he already has Reach and he's already got Pierce 2 Surge ability. So he probably benefits the least, but he does get the focus still. I think with Isaac's list, it works really well because of the reroll from Kanan. And then he also has extra armor. So I think as long as you're making sure the the Wookiees are the only thing that can be attacked and they have Yoda standing behind them, you're basically making it so that they're taking only three damage and not more. So moving on through Rebels, we've got... There was an interesting list played by Kyle that I found when I was looking through the games, which was a a Rebel Hunter list that had um, Mara, Lando, Loku, Sabine, and Biv. This was a list that was playing a bunch of unique figure cards, uh, and I'm assuming with Mara being the, the figure that was enabling them. So there were he had the unique command cards for Lando, which is, I think, cheat to win. It lets you change a die to any side after you reroll it. Really good card for Lando is cheat to win. And then the other thing was Loku's card and Biv's card. And Biv's card is actually really good with Mara because it lets you move two spaces and then you perform a free attack with a red-yellow. And then he also had all the hunter cards and parting blow with uh, looking for a fight. Ooh, boy. And he, he won that game. I don't know if he played that more than, than the one time, but I just thought it was interesting and it shows the range that is possible in Rebels. And then finally, like I feel like Rangers with Loku is still good. Yeah, I, I played that once just to give it a whirl. I massively misplayed, but still managed to uh, end up winning. It's it's definitely still works. Time will tell. I don't know if Rangers really are. Just because of the amount of added speed and defensibility, the thing that made Rangers so good in the FFG meta was the fact that they were just at the point where they can kill pretty much anything when they activate if they have all of their stuff charged up. So if you keep them safe and you play positioning right, they can win you a game. 
and I'm not completely convinced that that's still the case with how many beta level defensive folks there are out there. Yeah, it only it only takes you know one or two points of survivability to push things out of that range. I don't think there's anything in the meta that's really more survivable than Vader, or even at his level. I think Mando was the main one. He was close to being that. I mean, Boba is definitely a problem, but then also when you add the the consideration of of two mid range figures, you know, let's say that two figures can be put in the list who individually are less defensive than Vader, but collectively they are more defensive than Vader. And with three ranger shots, it's the number three. It's odd. So you're not going to be able to take out both of them in the same way. That you could take down, that you could take down a slightly damaged Vader. It's just that small mathematical difference. Again, I need to playtest it a lot more to really see if that math works out because I haven't played Rangers in a long time, and honestly, I'm missing them. <laughs> um, so we'll see. That's interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense actually, because like the mid cost figures in ICP are have gotten a lot stronger than they were in FFG. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the lists we've been talking about for both Scum and Rebel are mid-cost figure dependent. Exactly. And that's the thing. Two focused ranger shots kills less worth of points than they did in the FFG days. I think that's the, the big takeaway. At least against those mid-cost lists. Exactly. You still probably can kill a queen piece with three ranger attacks with all the cards, but you just don't see those types of lists as often, and those queen pieces are not always worth 13 points like they used to be. Yeah, and really another big thing as well is that rangers really rewarded careful positioning and good play, and there are so many effects now in the game which allows you to push people to spaces. Yeah. And that really makes it difficult to play against. I mean, and just take Boba, for example. Boba is the ranger's nightmare. Um, mm-hmm. Black die with an innate block to counteract the pierce, an innate evade, which rangers hate. And then on top of that, you've got the fact that he can just run up anywhere and flamethrow all of them. And rangers do not like weaken. They really do not. Yeah, and we've seen weak ways affected similarly, where I think the math just hasn't favored them. Like the, the small changes in the structure of how lists and and figures work. It's not that they've been power crept out. It's more just like things just kind of lined up really well for them in the old metagame, and they just don't line up quite as well in the new one. Exactly. So yeah, that's Rebels, what we've been seeing. I mean, there's obviously tons of options in Rebels, and the same is true for everything else. I feel like the the community like just kind of barely scratches what's available in ISCP, so... There's a ton of options, and so you don't have to pick one of these lists. I mean, like Isaac, nobody knew about that list before you started playing it. I think that can happen to anybody. It absolutely can, and that's why if you have a crazy idea, which you can see some mathematical reason why it works, give it a try, because that is ultimately how a lot of these meta lists are out there. Because I have seen that we, we've gotten quite a few people come to ICP recently and that, that's definitely I think going to be exasperated with the upcoming standard meta tournaments both in the UK and in America I mean I, I do know some players who they used to play in the FFG days so long ago but they don't touch ICP but now after that event they're saying yeah after I play that event I want to give ICP a try if you're one of those players and or if you're completely new to the game it really is possible to find the next big thing and that just comes down to understanding the game and trying things out to do give it a well yeah so in comparison to like the ffg meta because i think you mentioned there's going to be another ffg tournament in addition Mm -hmm. to the one at adepticon like that meta has been solved 
pretty much. Yeah. You're not going to see new strategies or new figures that weren't good before that come to the forefront, but ISCP is still very unsolved and there's still a lot to discover. And there's still a lot of things out there that like people thought were not good enough to be top tier that are winning. Like HK47, people thought he wasn't that good. Uh, Wookiees, people didn't think they were that good and Isaac proved them wrong. And Empire, and we can go into Empire now, like Royal Guards, people wrote them off when they got nerfed at the start of season four and thought they were yeah. trash. Uh, they're really good, actually. And now they're seeing a resurgence. <laughs> and don't call it a comeback because they were good. Like, I think we nailed their readjustment after season three. And I think it just took a bit, people a while to get over that nerf factor, right? Where it's like, oh, this is nerfed. I don't want to touch this ever again because I've. First of all, everybody was playing it in season three, and now it's nerfed. Why would I want to play this nerfed figure? <laughs> yeah, I think there's actually quite a bit of you know negative emotion that goes into playing something that's been nerfed already. Right, and we also get that like new figure syndrome where people just always want to play what's new, and the old stuff is old. Why would I play old stuff? There's new stuff to play. Uh, but it cycles, right? So as we go along, what was old becomes new and interesting again because people haven't touched it in a while. So... So specifically in terms of Royal Guards, what lists have they been running? In a Guardian heavy list or as support to keep things more alive? They're really more like support rather than being the main focus. I was playing in the playtest season with Moff Gideon double Royal Guards because Gideon has that interesting ability where he can sacrifice a figure. Yes. (laughs) Depending on the mission effects. And if you do that, you can focus a bunch of them the guards before they head out to fight but we've seen also joey using royal guards just a single set in his imperial hunter list and he was doing really good he was winning quite a few games with that list that was palpatine mara jade bt1 and the grand inquisitor of all figures again another figure that (laughs) people had written off largely even with the discount going from nine to seven he is kind of a Uh, you know but um you know in in the right list which was that list with joey where he has his hunter cards uh, to help with that attack power um he he was doing really well especially with palpatine adding that lightning damage to get through the queen piece defenses and then the royal guards are just really efficient where 10 health for a five point figure 4.5 point figure really because they're nine total uh and then their attacks just really consistent even without focus like they are rolling that Beskar Spear attack of red, yellow, pierce one, reroll with surge for plus two and surge for stun. They're they're just a generally useful figure for sure. So that's what I've seen them run with. I've also just suggested to people like that were looking for filler, like take Royal Guards. They're really reliable. They are fast. They are hard to kill. They do good damage. Good in terms of general stats. Yeah, they're just like a good figure. They're not going to like take down a queen piece on their own. They're not meant for that, but they are really good at supporting your other figures, and they're good at just doing random things like killing support figures or even like finishing off damage figures. That attack's really reliable. So no, considering all of the games that you've you've looked at, you know, in the season and the like, when the Royal Guards first came out, obviously a lot of the because of how good they were, a lot of the top tier lists involved a Royal Guard heavy list involving a lot of Royal Guards and the Royal Guard champion on top of that essentially focusing on on the Guardian and Brawler aspect of the Royal Guards to turn them into the main point of a list. Do you think that's still viable in today's meta? Or do you think the best way to play them, or even the only way to play them, is as support? I think you can focus a list around them. I don't know about like committing command cards to them. 
I think like if you're bringing like a bunch of cards just to play with the royal guards, like if you're bringing part like parting blow, dying lunge. I mean, dying lunge is good with them, but I don't know. I don't know about committing a bunch of command card slots to them. I think it could still work like with a Moff Gideon if you're able to focus because that was what people were doing in season three. That was yeah. what you guys. I mean, I we were all kind of trying that out was being able to focus them off of companions. That option got removed. Yeah, that was uh, <laughs> that was an experience when that was the thing. I remember having a lot of fun with that list. My opponents didn't, but I did. <laughs> yeah, Royal Guard Champion's a bit of an iffy one now. I think he can work. The problem with Royal Guard Champion is he's so reliant on that executor ability, and it's hard to trigger now. Well, actually, he still triggers off of Companion. That one does, but... Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to justify spending four points on an Ugnaught and temporary alliance just for the royal guard champion right so they're super um positioning heavy and you kind of have to like set up the positioning and, the, and it's easy to disrupt i haven't seen a lot of royal guard champion i think also with mobility generally going up he's less and less special right he just yeah. locks quickly his speed six i don't think we've yeah. made any speed six figures no but we do have a ton of speed five reach which is essentially the same thing and there's a lot of stuff with sort of more more mobile abilities whereas he just walks exactly i mean let's just compare the royal guard champion to the previous version of mando let's look at them they're both 10 points they're both very defensive they're both very fast and they both can perform two attacks i suppose champion oh yeah actually they both can potentially perform three attacks if the cards go your way But they are miles apart. You, you just look at Brutality as two different targets, whereas Mando is the same target. And just the ability of being able to move six and attack two adjacent is just objectively worse than moving five with mobile with reach, when your second attack is a range attack as well. Yeah, we haven't really seen Royal Guard Champion be relevant since the Junk Guard thing was fixed. And I think that goes back to something you guys talked about on a previous episode of First Order Optimal, right? Royal Guard Champion is not First Order Optimal. He is very difficult to play, and he has his return on investment for getting that good play is not as high as you would think. So I think he just wasn't ever really that great, even at 10 points. He's I think it makes him okay. And then we've seen a, a push towards more First Order Optimal things with Mando being able to get those double attacks during his activation and then that protective fire being very flexible on how you use it. But uh, we should probably talk about what's actually getting played in Empire. Yes. <laughs> so Ugnaughts, right? Uh, apparently somebody did play an Ugnaught Swarm in, in the league, but I don't think they got played more than once. I mean, Vader. Yeah, I assume it would be Vader, yeah. So Vader's seen a little bit of play. He wasn't as popular this season as he was in past seasons and actually wasn't doing that well early in the season, but he he did come back and started to reestablish himself. Uh, So we've seen Vader palp lists for the most part, and then you usually fill in two unique figures next to Vader and palp. So some combination of Thrawn, Agent Callus, BT with Suppressive Fire, Aiden Versio, or Mara Jade is what I've seen in the, uh, the lists that were played. You're not seeing a lot of Vader plus like generics anymore. That's not, that's just not what you do with generics in the meta anymore. You don't have to have Vader as a crutch. Generics have a lot of stuff they can do without Vader now. The other thing we're seeing, so without Vader, is uh, Palpatine with motivation. That has gotten really popular. I think Jake helped to popularize that idea. And then combination with General's ranks, which was, I think, released in season five. 
General's ranks, for those that don't know, was reduced from two points to one. It was made semi-limited, so it's instead of being unique, you can have two two copies. It updated the movement part so that it says instead of being keyed off of a move action or a move, it's keyed off of gaining movement points, and it increases those by two. So with motivation, if you motivate somebody with General's ranks, they're going to get three movement points instead of one. So that's really strong. Yeah. Because I feel like Empire does have problems with speed. Yeah. And so that's the, that is only available to generic figures too, instead of uniques. So that really helps to flesh out that side of Empire's faction of the generics. And we've seen a resurgence of generics for sure in season six. So an interesting question there in terms of General's ranks and how it works with Palpatine and Motivation. Have we seen anything resembling the old double-double with cheese, the double riot, double jet Palpatine list? Or have different figures been used for that kind of playstyle? Yeah, you see that a lot. I, my understanding was the double-double had Vader, right? Or no, did it not? No, Vader was the uh, double jets, but the I, unless I'm completely mistaken, I think the, the double-double thing was you had two riots, two jets, and then Palpatine, and then usually an HDP on top of that. It wasn't a top tier list, but it definitely was played. Yeah, you do see that. It's not usually two and two. Usually it's like Palpatine, two of a generic, and then like filler. So like Dark Troopers are used as filler in a lot of these lists. Aiden gets played as filler um, because she has that really strong single damage attack and the usefulness of, of Dio. Let's see, stuff that I've seen would be like Palpatine and ISBs. That's been pretty good. ISBs are really strong. I don't want to say they're super. They're really strong, but they're they're quite good. They're very useful. Generally solid. Yeah, because they they prevent the opponent from playing command cards defensively, and they give that third attack to any uh, four point figure in the list, not just to their own group. So they're very useful because they can have something like you could run them with heavy troopers or some other four point figure. And that figure will get the benefit of their command card stun ability because they're attacking during the ISP's activation. And then heavy troopers have been good in that that type of generic figure position. They just have a really good attack and they have access to heavy weapon cards. Royal guards you see a little bit. You still see jets, actually. I've seen quite a bit of jets getting played. I love jets. (laughs) Surprisingly, not a lot of riot troopers. I guess Riot Riot Troopers, though, their main selling point was just health for points. Mm -hmm. And if general survivability is going up, they probably don't have what it takes. The interesting thing is that Riot Troopers and the Flame Trooper was, I would actually say, the strongest thing to come out of Season 6 initially. Have we seen a lot of that in the latest meta season? Yes, I think that's what's happening is Riot's... There has not been a lot of people playing the Flame Trooper. So I think it's just a, a preference thing where people... Mm. Oh, they're played three times in the league and tournaments and one instance of Riot. So I think people are playing, are playing Flames with um, heavies. But since they have not been played a lot, uh, I think that's why we just haven't seen Riots. Because are, Riots are really good with Flame Troopers. So they can't be reinforced, but you can reinforce yeah. the Riots as long as the Flame Trooper is still alive. So it makes it easier to reinforce them. And then the strain combination of the Riot's baton with the, what is it called, Incinerate, I think it's called on the Flame Trooper that deals strain, is really strong in combination with Thrawn. So the Riot's are still good. Maybe they're not as popular because they have, I call it Obi-Wan Syndrome, where they're speed four and melee. So they're harder to use, right? You can't, you don't get that instant gratification of moving eight spaces and attacking somebody <laughs> like you do with some other melee figures. 
you have to sacrifice them to get them mm. into position. But with reinforcements, it's not an issue. So they're still viable. If you liked Riot Troopers, they are still viable and they play pretty much the same way, except they're buffed now by flame the flame trooper attachment it's nice to see the heavies coming back though because before iacp they they were unplayable yeah they've been really good i've watched them in, in games and that what is it called spread fire or spray fire that just adds a surge it really bumps up their damage output i mean the fact that it's while attacking as well that's in just insanely strong because usually when you would choose between sacrificing accuracy and applying damage that would usually be when you declare the attack but the fact that you can roll the attack with guaranteed five accuracy and then if you manage to get six accuracy if you're attacking someone at three then you apply the plus one set it's quite strong yeah i remember that being a bit of a debate internally during their design but i guess the wall attacking won out i, I think it was probably good that that happened because i think they're like just on the cusp. They're they're really balanced pretty well, and I think if they had been not able to do that, uh, it might have been a little underpowered. Let's see, we talked about Gideon and Royal Guards. Also works pretty well with uh, Stormtroopers. So if you sacrifice an elite Stormtrooper to Gideon, that focuses all the Royal Guards and one Stormtrooper, and then you can reinforce that Stormtrooper. Oh, here's the other big list. So we talked about Vader Palp, we talked about Motivation Palp with Generics, and then the other big list has been Captain Taro with Dewbacks. Yay! So we've seen a lot of that. Yeah, so Captain Taro plus one or two Dewback Riders, um, and that gives them access to creature cards, which have been really good in ICP. So Ferocity, Wild Fury, and Apex Predator get seen played with them. And then you usually see them being played with troopers because Captain Taro's command card is really strong in um, ICP. It's one point and it gives him a aura effect uh, for plus one damage to all troopers within three spaces of Taro. So that's a really strong force multiplier when on the turn it gets played. That definitely seems like a fun list. So we've seen it. Let's see. Kyle played the list in the later part of the league with snow troopers and death troopers, and that worked pretty well. Oh, that's where the bump in the win rates for those figures are. <laughs> Probably. Because <yeah. laughs> I was looking at that and I was wondering who it was because it's really small number of matches played, but high win rate. Yeah, they got they picked up steam later in the um, league. I think Morgan was playing it too later in the league uh he was playing it with dark troopers aiden and thrawn they also get access to covering fire which is nice something i haven't seen that i think would be really good with them is afra i think generally afra is underplayed in empire lists in general yeah 100 percent. in tarot list she's so good because you get a second crack at that cavalry charge because it's one point mm. and she also benefits from rule by fear really well so Unlike in Scum, Afra often will have, be able to excavate a card round one in Empire because of Rule by Fear. Now, whether that's a card you can actually benefit from in round one is it depends on how you build your list, but there are lots of cards that you can put in a list that are really good if you excavate them round one off of Rule by Fear. What else? Well, we've also seen Sentries. Um, Sentries have still been doing well. I know they did really well at the UK Games Expo, I remember. That was season five. You guys are running with them with Krennic, but we've seen them being run with Soren lately. Oh, interesting. And that was actually a meta response. Yeah, so we were talking about what, what answers Mando. Sentries plus Soren has been the answer that some people have tried. It's interesting. To stun him. To keep him from using protective fire. Mm. Oh, I like that. And Sabs and Rebels, too. Yeah, so we didn't talk about Sabs as much. We talked about it a little bit, but their ability to stun, it really turns off any kind of return fire ability. So it's also good against Han and um, Mix Mayfield, too. And Sentry's also got a buff in Season 6 because Dark Troopers are droids. So you, 
you get more droid troopers available. I think Krennic would still be good, honestly. Like, Soren's fine. He gives them access to Surge for Focus, which is nice. Uh, and he also, he gets to give them another attack with that elite officer ability that also adds Blast 1. But I think Krennic would be good too as just a damage battery. Yeah, definitely. Just briefly touching on Krennic, he obviously hasn't been played a ton, which is fair enough because he's, you know, he likes Soren. Is, it's not the kind of figure where for five points it's bonkers insane, but you can definitely build an effective list around it if that's what you want to do. Yeah, I, I really would love to see at some point some someone running both Soren and Krennic. Because the whole Krennix thing being within two spaces was very much intentional to allow that possibility. Because then you would obviously put comm systems on Soren. It would mm. be interesting. Jake's had a list that I think he calls it too many cooks. <laughs> it's all the Imperial leaders like Callus, Thrawn, Aiden. I guess Aiden's not a leader, but all of those like leader types. I don't think he runs Krennic or Soren, but... Uh, those kind of like six-point leaders, he just puts jams a bunch of them into a list. I don't know how good that was. I think he's had mixed <laughs> results with that list. Although he's, he claims it depends on how hungover he is on Saturday morning. <laughs> it's like that mid-range unique list, but in Empire. Right, exactly. I think that would be good with like Royal Guards in there too. To kind of The other nice thing about Royal Guards, going back to Royal Guards, sorry I keep doing that, but is that adding them to a list gives you a nice tempo boost when you need it. You know, you have that double attack or you can attack two different figures if you need to finish off two different figures. I think that's just been a general theme in Season 6, is the tempo has increased a lot with these new squad upgrades and just more attacks happening each activation. is just you have to be able to, to keep up in tempo or you're going to fall behind. Right. How many activations are we hitting in Season 6, actually? It feels to me like it's dropped a little bit. Yeah, so looking at just uh, the tournament and the league results, Rebels are still hitting 8 acts pretty consistently at 12, so 54% of lists are at 8 activations in the competitive games. Mercenaries much less so. Mercenaries, it looks like they're more at 7, so 53%, which makes sense because if you have Mando and another high-cost figure, you're going to end up around 7 activations. And then Empire, 63% are at 6 activations. Uh, 18% were at 7, and then 0 or 8 or above. I think activation count has been a less important. There's just less queen pieces being played overall. Like I know we've talked a lot about queen piece lists in ICP, but there's actually a lot less than there were in the FFG meta. Because it felt like in FFG meta, like you just every every list had a queen piece. Like you couldn't really have a competitive list in FFG without a queen piece, it felt like. And that's not true in ICP, as we've talked about with like these Palpatine generics lists doing well. I think that's that's because the mid-range got filled in so much more, right? Scum used to do all right without queen pieces because they had the power six and sevens. That's true, yeah. In, in FFG, but now everyone's got them, so now nobody needs them. What I do find particularly interesting as well is the fact that even though the majority of each faction, well, Rebels, their majority is eight, Mercenary, their majority is seven, and then an Empire majority is six, we still do have 9% of the Rebel faction and 6% of the Mercenary faction going up to nine activations. And, I mean, there has been a shift of smaller lists for the last few seasons, so it's interesting to see at least some proportion of the meta going back to that larger list type. Well, how, how many of those are Jawa Swarm? And... I was just thinking it must <laughs> be Jawa Swarm, right? I mean, the Mercenary, yes, but definitely not in Rebels. 9%... Smuggler's Swarm! All right, all right Isaac, <laughs> but is that you playing Han Rangers one time? <laughs> 
if you include the non-league games, so a lot of the casual playtesting games, I mean, that expands our data set quite a bit from... There's 88 matches that we have from tournament and league results, and if you go to all of the games, it's 126 matches. If you look at the activation count, I think it's still pretty similar, though. It just diversifies a little more, so Rebels goes to... There's 9-act Rebels 7% of the time. Scum has 9-acts 5%. 8-axe, 13%, and 7 is 61%. Interesting, I thought Empire had some 8-activation list, but it doesn't look like they're showing any. It's still 30, 30% 7-activation. It's interesting because it sounds like Empire plays more generics at the moment, and yet they have a lower activation count still. I mean, that's and that's been intentional where the generics they have to play are in that mid-figure cost range of seven seven to eight multi-figure activations i guess right yeah. that helps to keep empire from being able to make these like super efficient eight activation vader lists is what we want to prevent there because if you have vader at eight and he's not having to like dilute their activations with like officers and stuff you know if you just have eight activations and it's like a scum list but with Vader, that gets really crazy when you can um, activate Vader last, then end of round, and then start a round and do a, a parting blow. That gets really oppressive. Mm-hmm. While we're still on the topic of Empire, do we want to talk about the Dark Troops a little bit? Because I'm honestly a little bit surprised that they're one being played so little, and also that their win rate is below 50%. Because at the moment, we've got 19 games won with a 42% win rate. Do you have any theories on why that might be? Because... At least my view was that they were also one of the strongest figures to come out of Season 6. Probably just not a great home for them at the moment. I mean, like I mentioned, they've been run with Sentry Droids doing okay. I think that might be another case of maybe just Mando giving them a hard time. I think they are in that like sad spot of being one-shot by Mando pretty consistently. Mm-hmm. Or old Mando, pre-nerf Mando. So they, they might be getting held back. And I have seen Mando one-shot uh, Dark Trooper. It's just thematic, but yeah, <laughs> not good for the Dark Troopers. So yeah, I would say if you see a figure that seems like it should be good, but is underperforming, I would blame Mando. <laughs> it's hard when you're kind of a mid or a slightly low mid cost figure, and then you have one super overpowered one that loves to one-shot you, right? Yeah, Mando really preys on the mid mid cost figures especially that don't have like a defensive ability although he also preyed on cheap figures because he could divide his fire divide and conquer it was really the like four and five point figures that were beefy enough to not get one shot by one of his attacks but were not efficiently killed by both attacks i don't know it's hard to it's hard to quantify that but yeah i think mando is having a a a big effect a warping effect on the meta because he was he was super common too i know there was some mando fatigue being expressed in the the zion's finest slack before the nerf came Mm. yeah i mean it was what almost 80 percent of lists of a faction that was nearly 40 some percent of the entire list of games yeah well, I'll talk about, I think we should talk about the map rotation. Yes, definitely. So for Adepticon, there's going to be a map rotation beforehand, but we're also going to be implementing this map into the competitive league that's running, that's starting next week. We're going to make it optional for people to use either Java's Realm if they want to or play on the new map. And I guess now I have to say what it is. So the new map is going to be Deveron Garrison. That's the map from the Sabine and Zeb pack. It's a very small map, it's replacing Jabba's Realm. It's got uh, two objectives, one of which is a hold and control. The mission itself, I'll just briefly talk about it. So there's one where our holding and controlling 
objectives. There's five objectives, and they're each worth two points. And they also give out power tokens. So it's kind of similar to fluctuations. Not the map, but the mission structure. Uh, the map itself is very small, actually, but it's separated by some doors, so you can't just shoot at each other around one. And then the other one is going to be mission B. So the doors are locked on mission B, and then you can attack crates. And if you attack a crate, so those are the objectives. Uh, they actually blow up and deal two damage to everything that's standing next to them. And those are the ones that you have to control. You don't score by controlling them. You score by controlling them and then pushing them three spaces each round to your deployment zone. The way it works is you have six extra VPs for each crate that you have moved to your deployment zone. So you can get quite a lot, but it, it's quite a, a fight to move these crates because they only move three spaces and all of them are more than three spaces away from a deployment zone. So I think this will change up quite a bit what's going to be good. It's definitely going to be in favor for like melee lists. I think melee has struggled a bit in the current rotation because right now we have Jabba's Realm, Lothal Spaceport, and Moss Eisley. And I think Moss Eisley and Spaceport both favor range lists uh, a bit more than melee because they they have these long open sight lines. And honestly, the same is true for Jabba. I used to think Jabba was good for melee, but after playing on it a lot more, I've realized that the sight lines on that map are deceptively longer than I used to think they were. And um, as Isaac taught me, that that throne room, that big empty room, is actually worth a lot more points than I used to think it was. And so the player that can control that, usually with ranged figures, usually gets uh, rewarded quite a bit. 100%. I mean, I, I'll i be completely honest, I, I love that, uh, or I did love that with my rangers when that was in rotation. Deborah and Garrison, I think it's going to be very interesting. I think you're completely correct, Noah about what the effect on the meta is going to be. Because so anyone listening, you can you can look it up, Devaron Garrison, from the Sabine Ren and Zebarelius mission pack. But looking right at the bottom, from the point of view from the the map itself, you have this solid red line directly between the deployment zones. That is going to be brutal for any any range list. Absolutely brutal. The one between the deployment zones. Oh, the two doors. Oh, and then, yeah, it has that red cross, yeah. Exactly. The, the doors definitely aren't the problem. It's it's that red cross right there in the middle. Oh, I was really looking forward to playing Rangers now. <laughs> now I have to reconsider. Really, that what that means is if you're playing a range list, you just don't really want to hang out in that blue section of the map. You kind of want to head towards the terminals, and the green and red section of the map is probably better for you although you do have those four columns that are blocking line of sight yeah that's actually pretty nasty for line of sight with those four columns yeah i think this is going to shake up the meta in a nice way i think season six has really been dominated by ranged figures in my opinion melee has been viable if you know how to play it well but i think for the average player melee has felt pretty um a high barrier to melee lists so i think this map is going to be a good shakeup. Uh, it's actually interesting that you say that because I actually consider Mando to be probably less so now that his spear is nerfed, but the previous fully buffed Mando, I pretty much consider him to be a melee figure. And he's been the big dominant factor, just just because of the extra value that he got got out of being up close and getting those two attacks in. Mando's kind of an everything figure. He does both really well, and, and he has insane movement that other melee figures don't have. So normal melee figures like Obi-Wan and Riot Troopers... And even Maul. Like, Maul has been nowhere to be seen this season. I was going to ask that. Yeah, Maul is, has vanished off the face of the earth. 
yeah, sorry, I forgot to talk about Maul because he's still a thing you need to be aware of um, for the purposes of this episode being to prepare people for Adepticon and especially with this map. So that's why I wanted to bring up this map because this map is going to change what we see and I think Maul is going to definitely have a comeback. It's a small map. Yeah, because we, we did discuss Maul in detail on a previous episode and really what we, what we came up with is that Maul is above the curve in terms of his damage output significantly, but it's balanced because he is the slowest melee figure in the game, barring Riot Troopers. And th- this map, I think, is really going to then play into his strengths, the fact that he can't die. Oh, it's going to be interesting. I'm looking forward to it. There is a slower melee figure than Maul. Uh, Palpatine? It's uh, Jabba the Hutt. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> I was like, where are you going with this, David? <laughs> he's, he's also a, a hunter, you know? Oh my god. I think this map will actually be against Jabba who has been really popular this season. Again, because of Bib, we've seen a lot of Jabba um, because of Bib, but this this is going to make it really easy to get to Jabba and turn off that nefarious gains. I, I've noticed that like killing Jabba is not insignificant in winning a match because if you can turn off nefarious gains, that's a significant source of BPs that you're cutting off your opponent from, as well as card draw. Yeah. No, and not to mention... 10 damage versus a single black die for six points is arguably one of the easiest. How much are you sacrificing versus what do you, how many points do you gain out of it? Not even considering then the opportunity cost of no longer getting nefarious gains. Right. Arguably his best defensive feature was how hard it is to get to your opponent's deployment zone on most maps. And so that is significantly easier on this map to close the gap. What are your thoughts on Boba on this map? Because looking at this map as someone who's played Boba, I'm as a Ranger player, I hate it, but as a Boba player, I'm I'm very much smiling because I can see him do some nasty things here. Yeah, I think Boba's going to be good. Um, and Boba's another figure that we haven't really seen a lot from recently other than being playing second fiddle to the Mandalorian. But we don't really see him on his own, but I think he's going to really shine on this map where he can just easily cover that gap between the deployment zones and um, put some pain into the opponent. Same thing for stuff like Vader. It'll be interesting to see how Han does on this map because he can be oppressive with an end of round shot here where he can move up to get an end of round shot into the opponent's deployment zone. But if he does that, he's committing without 3PO. He, he doesn't really have anywhere where he can go and hide. Like he's, He likes to play that peekaboo game where he pops out and shoots you and then he runs back and hide. I mean, not necessarily because if you look at the amount of spaces, if you look at the red cross between the two deployment zones, if you deploy C-3PO up front and then move him up three, then he would be adjacent to Han if Han is on the other side of the cross, which is exactly where he would want to be. That's possible for the mission A, but like mission B, the doors are locked, so you can't open a door until the end of the round. Mm. So what you're saying is melee Han is not so great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, 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 What I'm saying is I don't know how this will affect Han. There's there's interesting things at play here. Yeah, I, I there's a lot of the interesting kind of red line blocking terrain things that could be quite interesting if you had mobile figures. Yeah. So I'm thinking, oh, maybe I want to play some Jets again. A hundred percent. I should mention this map does have an unfortunate interaction with Moff Gideon where his ability that triggers off of gaining VPs. The mission B scenario we are going to release a ruling that if you're anytime your VPs increase from a mission effect, so if he goes up from a mission effect, that will trigger Moff Gideon's ability, where if he gains VPs from a mission effect, he can sacrifice a figure, etc. But still, even with that ruling, you can't get a crate into your deployment zone to trigger that until the end of round two. 
that might hamper Moff Gideon if you're bringing him to trigger Royal Guard's abilities in a combo list. So that is something people need to keep in mind with him. Yeah, good stuff. It'll be really interesting to see how this changes. Yeah, I'm looking forward to see how people play this map. We'll definitely be available to play in the competitive league, and people obviously can play it on Vassal because we're going to announce it pretty soon. Anyway, I don't think I've been formally introduced. I've just been popping in with pithy comments. Hello, everybody. Oh, wait, sorry, sorry. I have to do this right. Hello, everyone. My name is Jake. <laughs> Welcome to Twin Troopers Podcast. We have uh, brought in a battalion of stormtroopers, and we are taking over. Who will thrust this? Oh, nice. Yay. All right, I think that's my cue to jump out. <laughs> thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. 